following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Feel free to stretch your legs out. You can stand if you'd like. So we'll be sitting for about 30 minutes tonight. And of course, it is okay to move the body. But before you move, just make sure to practice with the pain or the difficult sensations for a while until you're really clear that you can't skillfully practice. And then just quietly move the body, adjust as you need to. So you may want to consciously take a few easy, deep breaths at the beginning of the sit. Just as a way of coming into the body, feeling at home, here in the body. Consciously fill and empty the lungs. After the next long, easy exhalation, just allow the breath to continue on its own. Opening the hearing and just receiving the sound of the bell. for another minute or so, practicing being mindful, open to sounds. Remember this capacity for the mind to be receptive. Just receiving sounds effortlessly. And in particular, noticing the ephemeral nature of sounds. They come and go, always changing.
when you feel ready, allow the awareness to recognize the sensations here and now, feeling the body just as it is, sitting, without excluding or picking and choosing, but instead being receptive to the body just as it is now, including any unpleasant sensations or places of numbness. Completely trusting the body, letting it be. Feeling the sensations of the breath in the body. And perhaps choosing the breath as an anchor for the attention. Specifically noticing the sensations of each inhalation from the very beginning to the end of the in-breath. And then intentionally Noticing the beginning of the out-breath, each out-breath, all the way to the very last moment of the exhalation. Being mindful of the breathing, but not creating tension. Again, allow the mind to just be receptive, to know the in-breath and to know each out-breath just as they are. No need to control it. No need for it to be any particular way. Willing to return each time the mind wanders. And whenever there are strong distractions, just allowing them to be the meditation, dropping the breathing, and noticing the strong disturbance as something happening in the moment. Learning to be receptive even to the distractions, to allow them to be what they are. So we'll continue now in silence for the rest of the set.
no matter what happens, be willing to begin again.
and now for the last minute or so, remembering this possibility of unconditional acceptance. The body, the mind is like this now. Can this be okay? Take your time and stretch out if you'd like. a couple minutes and check in with one another. Of course, anything you've been noticing this week and uh, any questions, comments from your practice tonight or this last week. And also, if you've had a chance to try the walking practice, feel free to bring that up too. That's nice to talk about. You should probably check in about that in any case. So what are you noticing in your practice or any questions that you might have in particular about difficulties? And instead of, go ahead, Cole. I've got a question about um and find really useful the, the practice to when something comes up to say, oh, of course. You know. mm-hmm. But sometimes I kind of keep trailing and say, of course, I'm thinking about this because I was reading about it yesterday and I kind of yeah. attach the content to it. And what's a good time or way to kind of. Yeah, thoughts especially are seductive. So one of the things that help break that chain of being identified with a thought and in that moment of being identified with the thought in a way we we impute some special meaning to the thought it's almost like now this is Cole's thought and so because it has that meaning that identification then it's the cause for another thought which we then identify with and then on and on that's what we call proliferation of thought So what can be useful is to recognize that it's just a thought. You can even use that labeling in your mind or just to to sort of see it with that eyes, those eyes that understand. So it's like wisdom mindfulness. It's not just seeing the thought, but there's a certain wisdom that understands it's just thoughts. It's just thinking. 
And like uh, it's almost like we're seeing the thought or the thinking as an impersonal happening. It's not personal. It's just thoughts. These thoughts are arising in our mind due to causes and conditions. But when we're um, not seeing clearly, we assume that I'm thinking, and that gives it a certain those gives gives the thoughts a, a certain weight. And the mind is literally clinging. It's identified with the thoughts, which sets in motion the, the onward thinking. But if we can cut through that and understand, it's just thoughts. As if some, somehow we were meditating in a train station, you know, and there was just conversations. Some interesting, some boring. And those thoughts would be coming in. Now, and then imagine you're sitting in a train station where everyone's speaking a language you don't understand. With a mind, that, those thoughts wouldn't be sticky at all. And so we can have that relationship to thoughts in our mind. Just thoughts. That, the sort of habit of the mind to chatter, to narrate, and uh, just to have that light. So if you can, if you want to use a noting, then note it. Oh, just thoughts, thoughts being known. Yeah, that that can help. And then and then to immediately return to the a more neutral anchor, because thoughts tend to be so seductive, we don't want to hang out because otherwise, it's like the content. It's really, it has a gravitational pull. Like, for example, if you're meditating, and if I were here having a conversation, it would be very hard to hear my words as just sounds. The mind very quickly turns the sounds into meaning, and then it's like, personalizes the meaning. Like, somehow we um, get uh, related to the meaning. It's just sticky. So we want to notice thoughts as just thoughts, and then come back to the body, for example, or to the breath, or to hearing. Mm -hmm. And to be really patient about thoughts. Not to be in a hurry to get rid of thoughts. Not to engage in some kind of struggle with thoughts, because we're going to lose every time. So just... Uh, it's, it's not about practice. Meditation practice isn't about getting rid of thoughts. It's about changing how we relate to thoughts. So currently we take thoughts very personally and we want to have a more spacious, less sticky relationship with thoughts. Just thoughts. Any other thoughts? Dildar. I've noticed that uh, sometimes some of these are really sticky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to challenge this. Like I think a lot of these thinking things can be challenged. Can you give us an example? I like how you might challenge a particular. I mean, one, one, could, one could challenge it by saying, this, I had this thought yesterday, I already thought this. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, what's the use of thinking about this again? Mm -hmm. Or what will be the consequence of this thought? Will it be something that will be good for you? Or things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Buddha gave us, you might know this particular teaching, working with distracting thoughts. And of course the first the, the first defense is the most subtle. 
So we try to just be aware of the thoughts and see that it's just thoughts. But often it's still there suggesting that's not enough. And then we need a whole set of tools. And generally, though, we don't want to go to the most gross tool. We want to go from subtle to slightly less subtle to slightly less subtle to finally, in the end, we're willing to do anything rather than being swept away by unwholesome thoughts. So uh, one is the, the sort of next level of uh, invasive you know, technique would be to substitute the unwholesome thoughts with a more wholesome thought. So if you're finding yourself obsessing or thinking in a particular way, then just replace that with more wholesome thoughts. If that doesn't work, then you can reflect on how unwholesome these thoughts are. And the Buddha uses the image like wearing a garland or a necklace of rotting flesh. So you see, it's not so like you suggested, Bilder. You know, we reflect like, what is the consequence of having these thoughts? Well, it's like wearing a necklace of rotting flesh. Like, it's not very wholesome to be indulging in these thoughts over and over again. And just seeing the unwholesomeness of that repetitive thinking can be the cause for the thoughts to be let go of. And let's see, I think the next one is uh, something like, just like a person who was running might have the thought, well, maybe I'll just walk. And then someone who's walking might have the thought, well, maybe I'll just stand. And the person standing might think, well, maybe I'll just lie down. The Buddha uses an image like that. And the idea is to, to trace back. So if we find ourselves kind of caught up in thoughts, that we might, in a way, sort of see, well, what's behind the thought? And then look at that. And then what's behind that? So we're going from the gross manifestation, which might be a lot of thinking, to seeing what's behind that. And then what's behind that? And so we're tracing back to the subtle force in the heart, usually, some emotion, but then in the most subtle way to see what's behind. So it's a kind of analysis. Now remember, these are not the primary strategy, but can be quite useful when we're caught. If we immediately go to that strategy, then we tend to think about our thoughts. But if we're caught, then that strategy can be very useful to see, oh, I'm thinking about this again. Well, what's really going on here? What's the emotional tone sort of behind these thoughts? Oh, it's this. Let me open to this. What's this about? Oh, it's about this. And it's like tracing back until we get to the very heart of what's going on. That can be quite a useful strategy to be able to have. And then ultimately, the Buddha says, he uses the image that just as a strong man might grab a weak man by the shoulders and throw him down, beat him down, hold him down. Therefore, you should take mind, use mind to crush mind. You know, you grab, you use your mind to basically restrain yourself from continuing thinking in an unproductive way. Now, it's not that the Buddha thinks this is a very efficient strategy. It's the last strategy when everything else fails. It's like slightly better to do that, to use your mind to stop the mind, than to just allow yourself to be swept away in unwholesome thinking. Now, if you could do something less invasive, then you should do something less invasive. But it's better to do something than to do nothing, to just let our mind indulge in an unskillful way. Because that only leads to what's unwholesome, right? It just creates more tension and reinforces an unwholesome pattern. So we want to do something. And of course, 
we can think of other strategies like getting up and walking, right? So if we're completely lost and the, whatever has been stimulated is like very seductive, then it's worthwhile doing something than just being swept away by that thought, right? even if it means some wholesome distraction. And we'll ta- I'll talk more about the antidotes, like skillful escapes. But basically, there's one for all the five hindrances. So for aversion, any kind of fear, aversion, hatred, or um, irritation, impatience, it's loving kindness, to reflect on loving kindness. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later tonight. And the handout you got is really about this antidote for craving. Well, what's the opposite to craving? Right? If, we're, if we're really leaning forward, wanting something, what's the opposite? It's letting go, right? Simplicity or renunciation is the opposite of craving. So uh, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on how everything, no matter what it is, everything comes and goes. So. It's not even necessarily reflecting on the impermanence of the thing we're uh, craving. But for example, let's say we're really craving pizza. My wife and I, my wife and I had a bet right before the class started, and she lost, so she's buying me a pizza. We haven't had dinner yet, so we're gonna have pizza afterwards. So I could be craving pizza, and uh, and so here, if I reflect on impermanence, it's not I'm. I could reflect on the impermanence of the pizza like, well, it will be there for about 15 minutes and then it will be gone. And so what's the big deal? You know, it will be pleasant for a while and then it will be over. But we can just even more uh, broadly reflect on the impermanence of this life, like I'm living for a while and then this life will be over. Or my wife is living for a while and then her life will be over. And when we reflect on that, it's like these relatively small things lose their punch. It's like whether I have pizza in an hour is relatively insignificant, given that beans are coming and going, life is coming and going. It doesn't mean I shouldn't have pizza tonight. It just takes the charge away from it. And this is true. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh, a well-known Buddhist teacher now in the West and around um, from Vietnam originally. He says, whenever you have an argument with a good friend or your partner, just imagine what your bodies are going to look like in 300 years. And it like really undercuts the stickiness of the argument, the fight that you're having. It's like really hard to go head to head with someone when you realize you're going to be dust in 300 years or probably less time than that. So we can just use impermanence to unhook from greed. And then doubt. The key with doubt, when the mind is filled with doubt, uh, I mean, we could reflect on something we have real confidence in, something that we know from our own experience is true. But an even more powerful antidote to doubt is to take the mind and to see something clearly, whatever it is, like just to feel the buttocks on the cushion. If you're completely clear about the sensations of the butt pressing against the cushion or chair, there's no doubt there. 
So if you bring your mind to something, see something clearly, it uproots doubt. Now you may have doubt about your capacity to be a meditator or whether you're at the right meditation center. Like maybe that other meditation center would be better. Or I should have married this person. You know? So there's all kinds of things we could have doubt about. But when we just connect with present moment experience very clearly, doubt falls away. It's like, oh, hearing is like this. Or just in the very sense of being here in this room at this time, life is like this, experience is like this now. So in a, in a way, we can do it right now. We can just drop into the experience of hearing Mark talk here in this room, sensations like this, sounds like this. And you see how all of the big questions and the confusion about what's what, it all begins to diminish the more clearly we come into the present moment. So the antidote to doubt is to be absorbed in something in the present moment, to really connect with something in the present moment uproots doubt from the mind. Doubt, in, in, a, in, a, in this technical sense, now there's some wholesome doubt, like to have a kind of a skepticism about what someone's telling you, that could be quite wholesome. But so here, when I'm talking about doubt, I'm talking, it, I'm talking about it in terms of these five unwholesome mind states. So remember that. So as an unwholesome mind state, doubt means the mind is kind of spinning uh, in a way that's completely unproductive. It's like doubting in a way that doesn't lead to clarifying the situation. We're just sort of we're doubting our capacity, so we're not making any wholesome effort to clarify the mind. We're, we're in a way indulging in the doubt itself, kind of being uh, it's a form of helplessness. So by using the mind to really connect, it uproots the doubt, the force of the doubt, the kind of unproductive spinning. And then restlessness, the antidote to restlessness, is uh, concentration. So finding something that the mind can absorb in. Because restlessness is like the mind is seeking a pleasant experience. It's seeking something to absorb in, but it's not satisfied with that, whatever it does. So it's sort of flitting about. But the thing about a boredom is related to this is that what makes experience unsatisfying isn't the actual experience. What makes something unsatisfying is the lack of attention. Whenever we bring a lot of attention to something, it's inherently interesting. I, I, this is absolutely true. I guarantee you, if, if you went outside right now and paid a lot of attention to the sidewalk, it would become very interesting. Not as an intellectual subject, but as a present moment happening it's really interesting. Everything's interesting. Just the flux, just the, the sort of vibrancy of any experience is inherently interesting if the mind is fully awake or present. So this calms the mind down. The restlessness is the mind seeking something to pay attention to but not finding anything worthy of attention. And what we need to do is just stop and stay connect and connect and connect. And then sleepiness, the uh, antidote for sleepiness, dullness, is to be interested. 
is to generate interest. And we've talked about that several times, I think, over the course. So I'm just covering some of the territory I needed to cover anyway tonight. But there's still some time if people have any questions before we move on to the loving-kindness practice tonight. Anybody try the walking practice at home? Mm-hmm. Durgo? Just two things. One is uh, about restlessness, anxiety, and uh, doubt. I think these are related, and sometimes there is some energetic content, and say emotional content. And I find that one has to kind of locate that content. In other words, one has to see, is it, is it in the mind, or is it in the body? Mm-hmm. Where exactly is it? Yeah. And one can find what, what kind of anxiety is it. So if one finds that it's in body, then one can use some techniques. If it's in mind, one can use some other techniques. And sometimes when you are not able to understand it, then you can even walk, like you said. So I, I tried that, and I find that walking would calm both the mind and the body down. Yeah, that people find that's true. And you know, if if we are monks or nuns living a kind of traditional monastic life in the Buddhist tradition, at least, you know, we'd be pretty much left alone much of the day. You'd, in the morning, we get up. As soon as you can see the lines on your hands, you'd go walk to the nearest village and get your food for the day. You come back to your little hut in the woods or the place you're sleeping under the tree. You'd have your meal maybe with a few other people. And then uh, you clean out your bowl and you put it aside and you basically have the rest of the day, because you only have one meal, have the rest of the day just to practice. And you would alternate between walking and sitting. So walking practice is a uh, major part of the practice, especially when people are practicing inten- uh, intensely. They, they might sit for as long as they can comfortably sit, and then they might walk for an hour. And then they'd sit for as long as they could comfortably sit. And then they'd walk for about an hour. But some people, depending on the kind of energy level, they might walk for many hours and then do less sitting time. Or other people might sit more and do shorter walking periods. So you use the two as sort of medicine to keep the mind in balance. So then here, in this, this kind of framework, the practice isn't about sitting. The practice is about keeping the mind in balance. And sitting is just a tool. Meditation sitting is just a tool to keep the mind in balance. And meditative walking is just a tool to keep the mind in balance. And go, going and talking to a friend is just a tool to keep the mind in balance. And the whole life, eating, everything is just a tool to keep the mind in balance. Because if we get too hungry, the mind gets out of balance. If we start feeling too lonely and, and just have that strong emotional loneliness, it's not useful. It's better to be around some people and, and the mind calms down. If we need to see a teacher to get some questions answered, the mind will calm down. So we're basically using our whole life to bring about balance. And as lay people, you know, we're not living that monastic life, of course. As lay people, we can think of it that way too. We want to begin to see so many different things in our life as spiritual medicine. And medicine is useful only in particular circumstances. I had a a teacher once 
you know, and he, he had this idea that Coca-Cola is medicine. <laughs> and he would use it as medicine, you know. When he needed caffeine and some sugar, he'd go get himself a Coca-Cola, you know. And he would, you know, he'd have a little bit of entertainment. He'd allow himself one movie a week. He was a monk, this guy. And, uh, you know, it's just like, and uh, I just liked how he, he had a very broad sense of medicine. Like what would be useful to keep his mind in balance. And if you get too restrictive, you know, have this idea that you need to be too isolated, the mind just gets tight and kind of uh, brittle. So we have to really understand how different things affect, affect the mind and just get a sense of like what would help bring the mind into balance now. Maybe hanging out with a friend and laughing a little bit would be just the ticket. Or having a quiet night, a bath, and a nice meditation period would be just the ticket. Or reading a little inspirational book might be just the ticket. Or going on a three-month retreat might be just the ticket. So it just depends on you know, what we have available and what we know from experience might support the mind. And then, of course, when we choose the wrong thing, you know, we think, you know, I just need to blow off some steam. I'm going to go out and drink. And then the next morning we can assess, you know, are we more imbalanced or less imbalanced? And we can just use our life in some kind of honest reflection to get a sense of how it works, like how to move the mind into balance. And, not. and then in terms of the sitting, you know, as Dilder was suggesting, it's just we're doing exactly the same thing, but in a more refined way, like using different meditation objects to bring the mind in balance, like hearing as opposed to being with the breath. The breath is a more narrow object. It has certain advantages and disadvantages. Hearing is a broader object for the mind. It has certain advantages and disadvantages. Reflecting on loving kindness has certain advantages and disadvantages. So when the mind gets um, swept away often by aversion or fear, anger, a lot of judgment, then it might be useful to reflect on loving kindness. This is the antidote for all the forms of aversion in the mind. And so we might take this theme up specifically in a meditation period or more generally in our life for periods of time. If we have that strong conditioning to be angry, to be aggressive, to be cynical, to be fearful, then you might want to use metta as an ongoing reflection through the day and a specific meditation object. Now the instructions I gave you is some ways to use it both as a specific meditation object but also as a general reflection theme throughout the day. And the idea with metta, metta just means friendliness or loving kindness. And I know sometimes for some people this sounds like very sentimental, like, like we're almost pretending or imitating kindness. But it's not meant to be that way. It's meant to be very, very practical. And the way it works is, so let's, I'll talk now about it as a specific meditation practice. It would mean that either at the beginning of a sit, for the whole sit, or just for some period of our meditation period, we have the specific intention to cultivate the experience of loving kindness. Right? So that it begins with that intention in the mind. Okay, let's say I'm doing it because I'm caught in a lot of aversion. Or maybe you just decided that this is what you're going to be practicing for a period of time for the next three weeks. 
but there's this intention in the mind, okay, it's my intention to cultivate the experience of loving kindness. So then the first thing we do is we bring to mind some being that's easy for us to have feelings of loving kindness for. It could be a niece or a nephew, could be a pet, could be some teacher that we've had that's been really, this person has really been there for us or really inspirational for us. It doesn't need to be somebody you've met directly. You know, you could use the Dalai Lama or you could use some well-known teacher you've never met personally, but you've just found them very inspiring. But you would bring somebody to mind, and generally we don't bring a complicated person to mind, like a good friend or a, um, a, a lover or intimate partner. Because even though we might really love this person, often these intimate relationships are complicated. And, you know, we might have some resentment, but we also really love them. And, it, and it's just better to start. Now, you can work with them later, but to start, the, the first person we bring to mind should be somebody where our feelings are pretty pure and uncomplicated. That's why somebody like, if you're a grandparent, a grandchild might be the perfect person to bring to mind. Or if you have a really sweet relationship with the little kid next door, it might be a good place to begin. Or some mentor you had, you know, when you were a young adult or a teenager or a kid. Somebody who was really there for you, like an aunt or an uncle or a neighbor or a teacher that you had. So we bring somebody to mind. And then, so we're using our imagination, we're remembering this person. If you're visual, bring a visual image to mind. That's ideal, actually, if you can. Have a really clear image of the person. And especially if you can remember them happy, or remember their beautiful quality or qualities. So you're visually, or somehow having a felt sense of the person. And as you're feeling or remembering the person, you're also feeling the heart center. Now, you're not trying to make anything happen in the heart center. You're just feeling the heart center, and you're remembering this person you care about, that you have good feelings for. So that's the first part of the practice. And then once you've established that, then we repeat some phrases in the mind. And I list the traditional phrases in the handout tonight. But feel free to change these so that the words are really meaningful for you. And you might repeat them in a nice, steady way. Like, I'll just go through the four traditional phrases. So you're, as you remember the person, you're just saying silently in your mind, may you be safe and protected in all ways. And then you just silent for a moment, and you just feel the effect of those words. So in a sense, it's an energetic wish that you're sending out, in a sense, to that person. May you be safe and protected in all ways. And you connect to the meaning, like, this heart means that. And then you and then you send out the next one. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And you really connect. May you be free from pain, or may you be healthy and strong. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. And then you begin again. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And it's, it is a very potent practice. If you do these three things, which is have a very clear sense of who you're sending your good wishes to, have some sense of the heart center, however it is, it may feel hard, 
may feel nondescript, may feel open and radiant, doesn't matter. And then repeat the phrases. Now when the heart really, in moments, does feel quite open, like there's a real strong feeling of love or kindness radiating up, then you can drop the phrases and just focus your attention on the feeling of loving kindness. Let that be the object of your meditation. You can even, even the person that you're sending it to can become less important. And it's not like you're taking that person out of your mind, but more you're just absorbing into the experience of love, the warmth or tenderness or radiance of the heart. Then when that diminishes, and it often isn't strong, so I'm just letting you know that when it is strong, take it as your object of meditation. But when it isn't strong, then reestablish the person you're working with, the repetition of the phrases. So for most of the time, the anchor of the practice is the steady, calm repetition of the phrase. May you be safe and protected. May your heart be happy and peaceful, and on and on like that. Now, you can do this all day long. This is such a healthy, healing thing to be doing. And you can move to different people, too. But it's really good for you to know who's easy. It's good to have an easy person. And always begin with that easy person. Because what it does is it becomes a habit for you. When you bring this person to mind, it becomes relatively easy for you to start feeling feelings of loving kindness. So that's like the mind likes habits. Now we're making a really good habit. You bring this person to mind, you remember your heart's capacity to care, to have very simple but wholesome feelings of loving kindness. So that's why it's good to spend some time tonight, decide who you think is probably your easy person, and then just stick with that easy person. And then whenever it feels strong, feel free to move on to other people, including neutral people and even difficult people. It can be quite uh, healing to work with. But always start with your easy person, do some, spend some time there, and then only if it feels really clear and the, the feeling of loving kindness feels strong, then go on and experiment with other people. If you like, you don't have to, but feel comfortable going on. The other instructions in the sheet have to do with when you're working more with suffering then you work with compassion or when you're seeing a lot of joy then you work with empathetic joy where you're you're just wishing that may your law your success or happiness continue may it increase may it never end so just the phrase changes but the actual experience of the heart really is the same it's a kind of inward generosity it's like a feeling of upwelling in the heart and then going out that's really the feeling of loving kindness is just the opposite of neediness, like self-centered fear, self-centered craving. It's like pulling in, like me, 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 me. And loving kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity is kind of a coming from the inside out. It's an, it's an uh, inner abundance and out. And so that's what we're cultivating. And if you spend some time doing this, you'll find two effects. In your meditation practice, the mind will be less afflicted with the various forms of aversion, hatred, irritation, boredom, fear. And when it does get overwhelmed, 
you can then use the metta practice to reestablish balance. So first, just try being mindful of the anger or the irritation or the fear. But when just awareness and even the kind of uh, breaking down like Dilder was talking about and looking like what's really going on here, when that doesn't work, then it's really okay to shift to metta practice and to do some loving-kindness practice for 5, 10, even 15 minutes or as long as you need to. So that's one thing you'll find is that the mind in your meditation practice is more balanced and the awareness practice, the mindfulness practice itself is infused with loving-kindness. The other thing you'll find is just in your daily life that you get less caught in anger and you just start, the heart just starts uh, beginning to gravitate towards loving-kindness in very ordinary ways. You see a squirrel and you just see the heart kind of has this natural generosity like, may you be happy, squirrel. You see somebody in the highway and you just connect. This person wants to be happy just like I want to be happy. May you be happy today. May you find ease in your life. Even your partner, <laughs> you know, who is often the hardest person to have an authentic, pure feeling of love for. We just find it happening more and more often. So why don't we spend a few minutes and do this, and then please this week experiment with the loving-kindness practice at least a few times. And feel free to spend more of your sits doing it, just so you get it under your belt a little bit, and we can talk about it next week. And I'll also talk more about walking practice next week and about how to work more in daily life next week. But we'll just take the last five minutes to do some of the loving-kindness practice. Feel free to stretch out your legs. And do your best to sit comfortably if you can. Maybe take a deep breath or two to settle in. And when you feel ready, bring to mind somebody in your life who's easy to love. And as best you can, having a clear image or a felt sense of this person and taking the time to remember the beautiful qualities, maybe their smile or their sense of humor or some act of kindness that they did. Just feel the heart respond as you remember this person. Feeling the heart. And we'll just repeat these traditional phrases. I'll say them out loud and then you can repeat it silently in your mind and in your heart. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may you be healthy and free from pain. May you take care of your life with ease and joy.
May you be safe and protected in all ways. And may your heart be happy and peaceful. May you have good health and be free from pain. And may you live your life with ease and joy. And we'll move on, just so we have a sense of how it works with other people. We'll bring ourselves to mind. So you could remember yourself as a small child, if you like, or just have a felt sense of yourself right now, this heart right here. You might begin by just saying in your mind, I care about this life. May this life be safe and protected in all ways. And may my heart be happy and peaceful. May this body be healthy and strong. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. May I be safe and protected in all ways. May this heart be happy and peaceful. And may the body be healthy and strong. May I take care of this life with ease and joy. And just bring another person to mind, a good friend, family member, and just repeat the phrases two times silently in your mind, or come up with your own phrase or phrases. And we'll just end by having a sense of all the people here in this room. Even with our eyes closed, we know there are people to the right, maybe a person to the left, those in front, behind. And understanding that everybody here wants to be happy just like I want to be happy. May all the beings here in this room be protected from harm. May all the hearts here be happy and peaceful. May we all be healthy 
free from pain. And may we all live with ease and joy in life, free from suffering. Just as I want to be happy, may all beings without exception be happy and peaceful. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering. Just feel this quality of the heart as it is. Please uh, make the intention to practice both formally in your sit, but also informally during the day. Just as you've got some time, you can just repeat the phrases and really be creative. Don't kind of make it tight. You've got to do it right. Be creative in how you find a way to integrate the practice in your daily life. And we'll check in next week about it. If you have any other questions, of course, feel free to come up. Otherwise, have a good week, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.